This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. My name is Teddy Troy. I'm your host. Each week, we take a different book that has some relation to public policy, and we talk to the author about it. We get an expansive view of his thoughts on the book. And this week, the book is Pacific Cosmopolitans, A Cultural History of U.S.-Japan Relations. It's by Michael Oslin. He's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute here in Washington. He's also a columnist for WallStreetJournal.com, WSJ.com, and he's an expert on Japan and Asia and the U.S. relations with both the country and the area. So uh, in a moment, we're going to get Misha Oslin on the line and have him discuss his book and how cultural history between Japan and the U.S. has changed over the last few centuries, and it seems like there's a lot more history that's happened in the last couple of hundred years than you would expect in such a relatively short period in historical terms. So let's get Misha on the line, and we'll have a good talk with him. Hello, we have Misha Oslin on the line. Misha Oslin is the author of Pacific Cosmopolitans, A Cultural History of U.S.-Japan Relations. He's a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, although I'll let him talk about his background. Misha Oslin, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thanks, Debbie. I appreciate you having me on today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, background, who are you, how did you get to AEI, and how did you come to write this book? Well, I've uh, been at AEI for about four years. I direct the Japan Studies program there and also uh, help run the Asian Studies program. Uh, Currently, I talk mostly about public policy, defense issues, security issues between not only the U.S. and Japan, but, but all of Asia and have been focusing on, on the, uh, the larger Indo-Pacific region. But before that, uh, before I came down to AEI and, and D.C., uh, I was a professor of Japanese history at Yale, and I was there uh, for seven years and wrote a couple of books while there. And the one that we're talking about today Pacific Cosmopolitans, I actually wrote uh, the bulk of it while at Yale and then finished it up down here in D.C. and just published it. So I started off, uh, as a, as I mentioned, as a Japanese historian. Uh, I taught everything from ancient Japanese history up to, to the modern period. Um, did my Ph.D. Uh, in 19th century Japanese diplomatic history and, and published a book out of the dissertation. And then slowly began to focus a little bit more on what Japan was doing currently and, and the U.S. policy both towards Japan as well as other Asian countries, uh, and ultimately decided to uh, try to come down to D.C. and had a great opportunity to come to AEI and, and talk about all the things that uh, I think are important. What was the book you wrote out of your dissertation? 
uh, that book is called Negotiating with Imperialism, and it was a um, it came out in 2004, uh, also Harvard University Press, and it was a, um, a revisionist look at the first years of Japan's treaty relations with uh, the West. Uh, you know, the, the typical story we had was that Commodore Perry sailed in with his black ships. Uh, in the early 1850s and opened Japan, and then uh, we forced these trade treaties on them. And somehow that caused Japan to modernize itself and emerge about 40 years later as this uh, new uh, powerful state that that, uh, attacked China and attacked Russia, and and before you know it, we're at Pearl Harbor. I mean, that was the traditional story that people had for decades. So instead, I, I looked at how relations actually worked and found that there was a lot more fluidity. There was a lot more give and take. Uh, the Japanese were far more active in, in actually shaping how their relations with the West uh, developed as opposed to just being um, uh, you know, forced into a corner, so to speak. And, and that sort of influenced where I went with this book, which was to try to look at uh, a part of the relationship, which was everyone knows is important, but no one had really studied, which is what, what role exactly did the uh, different types of cultural ties uh, that Japan and the United States developed, what role did those play in the, the broader uh, relationship that we usually think of as political and economic and, and of course, um, security-oriented? Yeah, it's interesting. In, in your book, you talk about this notion of enduring cultural exchange. And I think Americans are aware that American culture, pop culture, is big in Japan. But I don't know that Americans have a sense of this notion of enduring cultural exchange. Can you talk about that and also generally what the book is about? Well, the book is um, it's a, it's a narrative history. I mean, it, this is a huge story. And, and I uh, note right up front that there's there's no book that can really talk about uh, everything. They can talk about all the different ways in which Americans and, and Japanese uh, encountered each other and then began to uh, formalize the ways that, that they had exchange. And, and that's a process I can uh, talk about a little bit later. Uh, but the, the enduring uh, cultural exchange aspect of, of this relationship is one that I think historically um, you wouldn't necessarily expect. So, for example, we're, we're familiar here with uh, the, the ties we have with Britain, obviously, or uh, France or Germany. And uh, part of the reason we have those, of course, is because you have very large uh, immigrant communities that settled in the United States that maintained uh, either traditions from the homeland or, or some type of connection that uh, lent itself ultimately to groups and organizations uh, that promoted cultural ties between the two countries. Um, in the case of Japan, we didn't have that. Uh, not only did we not have a long-standing uh, sort of natural relationship with Japan, we had a very artificial relationship that was indeed started in, in some ways uh, at the official level be, by Commodore Perry and those who followed him. But we also didn't have a very large and, and still don't really have a very large Japanese-American community. So you wouldn't necessarily think that um, just uh, you know, 40 or, or 50 years after Commodore Perry arrived in Japan, that you'd have Japan societies uh, popping up all around the United States. You wouldn't necessarily think about how popular uh, Japanese art became in the United States, uh, or that there would be organizations devoted to uh, helping train scholars and, and professionals on Japan. So it, to me, it seemed that it was not only a relatively uh, certainly interesting and relatively unique historical uh, story that I wanted to tell, but it also said something about the way in which 
um, our relationship with Japan has always been to some degree or another based on on cultural uh, cultural ties. And then there's one other element of it that I mentioned I'm, I'm certainly happy to talk about more, but that is all of this is happening uh, at a time when, first of all, both America and Japan are becoming world powers. Uh, so that, I think, is significant, and it, and it um, may give us some uh, hints as to how uh, states that are becoming uh, globally influential attempt both to order their, their foreign relations and, and try to shape them. So there's a tension between what the state does and then what, what private individuals do, of course. But also that this is uh, happening almost precisely at the time that a global uh, network of cultural exchange and intellectual exchange is developing, moving away from the old sort of British learned society model to the, the type of world where uh, intellectuals or artists or performers or whoever could gather at international congresses, could, could you know, cross the oceans, could uh, publish their works and, and have them received in many different communities. And so the, the modern world that we don't really think too much about, where you have constant exchange between societies and cultures, uh, is uh, a framework in which the Japan-U.S. relationship uh, developed and emerged and I think very much influenced uh, the, the subsequent history of that relationship. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Americans have this perception of Japan as a closed society culturally, and you talk in the book a little bit about restriction edicts. But you also mention a fact that I found fascinating that by 1800, according to Donald Keene, the Japanese were the best informed people about what's going on in other cultures of anyone on the planet. And I think that is kind of contrary to people's perceptions. Yeah, I would. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's it's uh, an important point he makes. I mean, I'm, I might take it with a grain of salt as to whether it's it's absolutely true. But he was writing the the book in which he wrote that was back in the the 50s, and he was trying to show precisely uh, uh, how this this point that you started off with Japan as a closed society really wasn't wasn't true. And there's been a lot of work since then that has attempted to show the ways in which Japan really was was very much involved with the outside world, but on its own terms. So the old idea, again, we had of Commodore Perry coming in and opening up Japan really uh, is an American conceit and, and one that is probably natural, but does not really um, reflect the reality of Japan's international experience. So what I actually start the book off with is not um, the beginning or the first you know, substantive uh, chapter is not about uh, Perry or um, the Japanese going to America or the like, but it's actually uh, a brief history of Japan's encounter with the world as well as America's encounter with Asia because for Japan in this period in which it was ostensibly closed, it actually had um, different types of relations with uh, countries, primarily China, but those uh, in Asia and Southeast Asia uh, with which had trade and other relations. There was intellectual exchange. There was a lot of cultural exchange. A lot of what we think of today as Japanese came in during this period in the 1700s and 1600s when Japan was supposedly closed. Things like um, tofu and, and green tea and noodles and, and the like all were imported. Parts of you know daily material culture were imported in this period when Japan was supposedly, uh, supposedly isolated. So I, I look at all of that first primarily to uh, set up the argument that, that Japan had a deep and rich cultural engagement with the world when it then first encountered the United States. Uh, and from the American side, it's it, a little bit 
more interesting and complex because the Americans, of course, is a new country and a new nation located on the East Coast uh, primarily. We're nonetheless beginning to reach out, uh, move from the West Coast into the Pacific, uh, you know, dotted uh, communities of whalers and, and ultimately shippers and, and merchants, not only coming from New York, but from San Francisco and, and other uh, communities. And they're in, encountering this this massive world of Asia that they don't really differentiate much uh, about. They don't they don't always divide it up into its its parts as as they actually were. But in the American imagination, what was Asian and what what did it represent? And so a lot of times you'll see, as I talk about in the books, American colonial newspapers talking about um, Japan as representative of of a part of Asia that they simply didn't know much else about, but were labeling it as Japan. So there was a lot of ferment in both countries, a lot of cultural exchange, a lot of attempting to understand the world, map the world, order it in their own minds, and that is uh, the the framework in which suddenly they're thrown together, and from that, this rather vibrant uh, cultural relationship then emerges. Um, that's actually a good lead into my next question, which is, who is Nakahama Manjiro, otherwise known as John Mung, and why is he important in your story? Well, he was uh, the the first uh, Japanese who really lived in the United States, as, as far as we know, and um, was a castaway, as, as many of the first Japanese to reach our shores were. A fisherman, a very young uh, boy of around 15, he was uh, shipwrecked and then picked up by an American whaler. So he had a lot of American whalers out in the region. You'll, you know, you'll remember uh, Moby Dick talking about the whalers reaching out to Japan, the double-bolted land as it as Melville called it. And uh, uh, Manjiro was picked up, brought, uh, and whereas his um, uh, compatriots, in fact, were dropped off at at other islands, uh, possibly the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, if I remember correctly, uh, captured the ship uh, in what today we would consider uh, international kidnapping, probably, decided to take this young boy back to Fairhaven, Massachusetts. And... uh, had him live with his family, put him into school, educated him, uh, taught him skills and and crafts and and the like. And after a period uh, of several years, uh, Manjiro ultimately decided to try to come back to Japan and spent another several years working his way back to Japan uh, on on various ships, by which time he had actually uh, gained a a whole bunch of skills that were taught to him in the United States. at this point in Japanese history, there was there was an edict against traveling abroad. So those Japanese who left the islands, either um, by their own volition or because they were, were uh, shipwrecked and, and brought to other lands, uh, returned only on pain of death uh, because of the, the way that the, the shogunate, which controlled the country, attempted to control foreign relations. So Manjiro took his life in his hands coming back. But he comes back right at the end of... Uh, the the shogunal period when Japan recognizes that uh, something has to change in its relations with the world as well as its domestic political structures. And instead of uh, being summarily executed, he is in fact hired by the shogunate to teach them about America and the world. He becomes an intelligence resource for them and uh, writes uh, in his basically what is his debriefing, uh, what he calls his diary, talks about uh, the United States and talks about his experiences there, which are largely colorless. They're bloodless. They don't, they're not filled with anecdotes and stories, but they're, they're much more um, prosaic descriptions. But it was the first 
uh, it was the first first-hand account Japanese had really had uh, of the United States as opposed to second-hand accounts through the Dutch or uh, fanciful accounts that they made up. So Manjiro is, is significant, and he's contemporaneous with a few other Japanese who also uh, were shipwrecked and, and brought to the United States uh, and witnessed, in essence, the birth of a new world in Japan and in many ways were the harbingers of it. You know, that, that raises actually an interesting point about um, this notion of uh, intelligence or spying between the two nations because the, the, you know, obviously just by simple appearance, the, pe- the people before there was a lot of exchange, uh, a popular exchange, people look very different. And so the, I know the Americans had a very tough time getting any information about what Tokyo looked like in the lead into World War II. And there's the famous story of Mo Berg, the, uh, the baseball catcher, going on a baseball exchange and taking pictures from a building in, in Tokyo that gave the American planners the only views they had of Tokyo leading into World War II. Um, what, what was your experience on uh, intelligence exchanges between the two countries? And, uh, you know, you sort of wonder if that might be a book in itself. Well, the, um, of course, during this period, there wasn't anything uh, such as formal intelligence. You know, we didn't have an intelligence agency until uh, during World War II. And the, and the Japanese had... Um, what would, I think we could call a proto-intelligence agency, primarily directed towards mainland uh, China, where they were uh, having uh, all sorts of different uh, attempts to penetrate Chinese society or control the, the areas that, that, that they did uh, have troops in during the 1920s and 30s, and they would use uh, adventurers and use, um, uh, use uh, uh, army soldiers and the like. So both of us were actually pretty slow on the uptake in, in terms of modern intelligence, although I, even the Europeans didn't really formally start their intelligence gathering activities until the 20th century. So well, everyone well, in the as a spy master. Well, she, she, she did. I, I think a lot of it is, is our way of, of sort of interpreting, you know, the gathering of information and, and the first attempt to actually systematically collect, interpreta- uh, collect information and interpret it and use it. And, and so some did, like Walsingham, uh, who worked for, for Queen Elizabeth. And then you had, in fact, in, in the case of Japan, starting around 1800, which far before most other nations, was a, uh, a, a group that was actually called the Astronomical Bureau, whose job was to collect information on uh, foreign lands, to translate foreign books to the best of their ability, and to send that information directly to the government decision makers. So it's not sort of spies and, and James Bond as, as we think about, but much more the, the sort of uh, scholarly, uh, nerdy folks who are sitting there reading newspapers and reading books and trying to glean bits of bits of information. The Japanese did this also by questioning those who, who came and visited their land. Uh, some that they didn't allow in uh, except um, when they would uh, sometimes shipwreck themselves. And I actually talk about a case of an American who shipwrecks himself in Japan. Uh, they would lock up and then they'd interrogate. They would interrogate the uh, the crews of ships that were allowed to dock at Nagasaki. The Dutch were actually forced to supply the Japanese with basically intelligence reports uh, every year about the state of the world, and those were sent up from Nagasaki up to the Shogunal headquarters in Edo, which is today's Tokyo. So there's lots of there there is lots of different ways in which um, the Japanese gathered information. I think the Americans were much slower. Uh, really, were not as focused on it. Were focused much more on the commercial aspect of learning about Japan as well as the rest of the world. Um, whereas for the Japanese, they felt a, they felt a sense of danger, and it was danger precisely because there were different cultures impinging on their way of life and, and forcing themselves on Japan. 
Um, you know, by the time Mo Berg goes over in the in the 30s, um, you know, Japan is a very different world, of course, and, and a different um, country. And uh, you, there's a lot of different ways to gather information about Japan from the newspapers, uh, from uh, things like National Geographic, which had wonderful photo spreads. So he may have been sent to, you know, tasked to take specific uh, types of pictures, maybe of port facilities or things like that. But certainly um, the the world uh, that rapidly developed in Japan from the, the first years of contact in the 1850s to, you know, about three quarters of a century later in the 1930s or so, uh, is one in which we, we do get a lot of information and we get it uh, precisely because of this rapid increase in cultural and economic ties between the two countries. Yeah, you mentioned China in there and, and Japan's interest in getting intelligence of China, but you also talk about Chinese culture and how important it was in, in Japan. Can you talk a little bit about the role, the sort of rivalry between Japan and, and China and how China was viewed by Japan? Well, it's always been the, the great uh, influence on Japan. Uh, China has been from uh, you know millennia ago. The Japanese looked to China for uh, concepts of, of uh, politics and kingship and, and state rule. Uh, they obviously adopted their, um, their uh, ideographic script, kanji, from China. Uh, they adopted um, technology from China um, that, that was used for political purposes, uh, adopted architecture and architectural forms. The earliest cities in Japan were actually patterned after Chinese imperial cities of you know, straight grid line avenues and streets and, and palaces and the like. So China has always been central to Japan's civilizational formation. Um, this book actually is situated at the moment when Japan finally, in a way, informally turns away from China and turns toward the West. I mean, there, there were moments earlier, particularly in the late 1500s and early 1600s, when Japan also was, was uh, fairly engaged with the West, um, the period of uh, William Adams, the, you know, the English pilot who comes to Japan and is made a samurai. But, but this period, um, when Japan has fully identified itself as part of the, the Chinese world, or in some, some cases has actually sought, uh, at least in its own mind, to supplant China as the center of Asia and the center of the universe, um, it now realizes that there's a different civilization that is superior, uh, a different world that, is, that offers more, more riches, more strength, and decides to pursue that. And in many ways, it's America that represents that for the Japanese. I mean, they're obviously very interested in Britain. They're interested in Germany. Um, they're less interested in um, uh, Russia, a little bit interested in France. But it's, it, it's really, in many cases, America that the Japanese turn to, and they, they identify with America. They use, whereas before, that they had identified with China as the most um, advanced society and civilization on earth. Now they identify with the Americans as a brash, new, young civilization that is increasingly powerful and increasingly influential, and one that they want to pattern themselves after. And so they send out students, and they send out official embassies, and they uh, basically uh, supplant China with America uh, and the rest of the West, but with America in this period in the late, 19, uh, late 1800s. Um, ironically, uh, 
fairly soon after that, of course, as Japan becomes a colonial power uh, after defeating China in 1895, uh, taking over Formosa, which is today Taiwan, and then Korea. Uh, and the United States becomes a colonial power in 1898 after defeating Spain, taking over the Philippines uh, and, and Hawaii, that the two, as convinced as they are of the importance of the other, also now begin to see geopolitical threat. And so the, the fascination and the cultural fascination doesn't change, it doesn't ebb, it continues, but it is uh, overlaid in a way with the state concern about the, the threat posed uh, by the other, by the Navy of the other and the policies of the other. So there's a great tension that develops, uh, the same type of tension Japan always had with China. Uh, the, the, this tension is now transferred to the United States and um, is one that um, ultimately winds up in, in the tragedy of war. Yeah, um, I'd love to talk about this this 20th century story, but before we do that, you've mentioned Commodore Perry a few times, and I'm just concerned that some of our listeners might not really know who Commodore Perry was and why he was important. Can you just give us a, a quick breakdown on, on Commodore Perry and how he kind of got the ball rolling? Well, he was um, he, he was actually in many ways the culmination of American attempts to uh, reach out to Japan, not because uh, Washington, D.C. was interested in Japan, but because they were interested really in, in two things. One, having coaling stations for U.S. Navy ships that would be uh, ultimately reaching China. And secondly, because of all the American whalers that were in the North Pacific, they needed um, an agreement with uh, Japan that would allow these whalers uh, to um, seek shelter there or to get supplies there. And so the Americans had made uh, several attempts. Some initially were done by merchants privately, and then uh, there was an attempt in the 1830s and the 1840s by the Americans to reach out uh, to the Japanese uh, but the shogunate was was at this time moving into its final reactive phase and and whereas Japan before had in many ways been open to the outside world though on its own terms in in this period of the 1830s uh 20s and 30s uh, and 40s was actually closing up far more than it had before uh, the, the British were also uh, beginning to knock uh, on Japan's doors, uh, moving uh, through Southeast Asia and, of course, uh, into China's mainland during the uh, the Opium Wars. Uh, so Japan knew the world was changing. So Perry is sent out uh, on a second uh, formal U.S. mission to try and open Japan uh, in 1853, where he goes and delivers a letter from the, the president uh, of the United States, Millard Fillmore, to the Japanese leaders, and then returns the following year in 1854 to negotiate a very limited trade treaty. But, but this is a moment of um, great uh, national shock to the Japanese. Um, Perry sails in with a, a steamboat, which they had never seen, a steamship, uh, you know, enormous ships with cannons that had crossed the ocean. Uh, he was, he diplomatically played his hand very well by, by refusing to be deterred, uh, by Japanese, um, refusal to, to initially meet with him and he refused their refusal. So the Japanese were forced to, to treat with him and to deal with him. Uh, and it, uh, ricocheted throughout Japan. There were, there were, um, penny broadsheets that talked about Perry and, and, uh, painted him as a devil and that his, Black ships belched smoke and fire. Um, there were there was a, a political panic. Uh, it led to economic panic. Uh, all of this ultimately leading to a, a significant weakening of the ruling shogunate, the ruling samurai family, uh, who who lost power 15 years later. 
And on the other end of the equation, Perry became a hero in the United States. I mean, people had known about Japan. Uh, we here considered it a closed land because we didn't have relations, and no one except the Dutch had relations with Japan. And it was an American who, quote-unquote, opened it up. So Perry published a very popular um, uh, journal and uh, a three-volume uh, study of his uh, uh, his mission to Japan was published, and he, he basically became a national hero uh, in opening up Japan. And, and, you know, if you ask Japanese today, the Americans that they, they really know best from history, it's Commodore Perry uh, and General MacArthur, who uh, uh, was the uh, basically uh, the uh, overlord of Japan during the occupation after World War II. Now, was Commodore Perry today, you say he's well-known in Japan, but is he seen as a positive character or still as that kind of devil with the black smoke coming out of him? No, I, I think he's seen uh, largely as, as positive. I mean, you, you hear very little negative about Perry, and I think it's because Japanese recognize that in some ways he did set in, in motion the train of events that led to a modern Japan. It wasn't obviously all his doing or his decisions that that were made, but it was his refusal to take no for an answer uh, that forced Japan into signing its first set of, of formal treaties. I mean, that's that's uh, the topic of my first book and, and what that meant for Japan. So I think he's he's very um, he's very well known. I mean, I you know, is he loved? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say he's loved. And and in many ways, the Japanese revere MacArthur because they felt MacArthur could have been much harsher in dealing with Japan after World War II. Perry is seen as the moment of transition between two worlds, between the Japan uh, of the samurai and and a feudal system that uh, would have kept itself largely apart from the world, though not entirely, and the Japan that emerged as a world power. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's hard to love MacArthur if anyone for anyone who's really followed the, his um, his mess ups in the Korean War, but I'm, I'm glad at least the Japanese like him. Um, the uh, the talk of Perry and his kind of movement into the uh, the Japanese harbors with with these with these large guns and the threat is a good lead in to the change or the shift in the U.S. Japan relationship that you started to talk about a couple of minutes ago in the 1920s and 30s as Japan becomes more of an obvious threat, especially after 1905 when they, they defeated the Russians. And there was sort of a sense of uh, two heavyweights sizing each other up in, in this period. Can you talk a little bit about the, this period and how cultural exchange dealt, um, was dealt with in that, in that time? Well, this is, it's a moment when for Japan, the world is in essence uh, opening up. And it's hard, I think, for us to imagine what it must have been like um, to go through an era where uh, everything was upended, I mean, from politics to the economic structure of society um, to the things that really matter to people, which is their, their, their daily lives. And it, and it comes about precisely because of this connection um, between Japan and its, its trading partners, uh, the treaty ports where foreigners could live, uh, the restrictions on travel that were lifted uh, so Japanese could go abroad and, and the like. And there was a, a famous British... Um, scholar of, of Japan, actually, Basil Hall Chamberlain, who was very well known around the turn of the century, um, who wrote that uh, for someone like him who had come to Japan at the end of the feudal period uh, and then witnessed the modernization, uh, it was as though he had lived uh, from the Middle Ages to today and, and seen uh, compressed into one lifetime hundreds of years of change in the West. Uh, and for the Japanese, it was just as bewildering. I mean, you know, for people out in the countryside and the peasants, 
Uh, did their lives change that much? Not, not that much, slowly, but surely. But for those uh, in the cities and, and urban areas or, or uh, quasi-urban areas, obviously those engaged in, in trade or travel, um, the world uh, within the, the, the space of just a few decades was completely upended. And, and, and it led to everything. I mean, there were some who adopted it for pure economic purposes, people who opened up breweries or, or opened up uh, steamship factories or, or uh, textile mills, others who adopted things from the West and, and America, for example, uh, that were more intellectual in nature, so political ideas, um, uh, poetry, uh, new ways of, uh, of writing uh, novels and, and uh, art and the like. So it, it was a period of intense ferment and uh, n not without backlash. I mean, there were many Japanese who, who uh, rejected this and who thought that Japan was losing its unique culture and its soul and, and would not be something uh, that uh, it, uh, it would not be the Japan uh, of its forefathers and therefore not really Japan. If, if it was attempting to ape the West and, and act like the West, then what was it to be Japanese? And in some ways, I think that's the great question of Japanese, modern Japanese history as, as Japan threw off 700 years of one type of rule and over the past 150 has attempted to create a new type of society. Uh, the question is, who are we as Japanese, uh, and, and what does it mean to be Japanese? All of those questions, I think, really come to the fore in this period uh, of the, the late 1800s uh, and the, the ferment of cultural discovery. Yeah, you know, when, when you look at this story that you're telling, it's just amazing how much happens in such a relatively short period. Because, I mean, right now we're, we're talking about the lead-in into World War II, and obviously in World War II, the U.S. and Japan – uh, even though they were building up relations, positive relations for a long time, I mean, dehumanized each other, demonized each other. I mean, we all know that the the Japanese were put in internment camps here in the U.S. and the, uh, the, the I mean, the Japanese soldiers and U.S. soldiers just had the worst things to say about each other in, in the Pacific fight. But then I know President Bush, when I worked for him in the, in the White House, he often used to talk about his good relations with Prime Minister Koizumi and how they were such good friends. And 60 years earlier, I guess Bush's father and Koizumi's grand father had been opponents in that war and how thing, things can change so rapidly. So can you talk about that World War II period? And obviously, um, after the dropping of the atomic bomb, the, uh, the Japanese were understandably not favorably disposed to the U.S. How, how bad was it in World War II, and how did it start to turn around? Well, it's, it's interesting um, precisely because of the, uh, the warmth of relations before the war, as I said, overlaid with that geopolitical suspicion. Um, the fact that you had uh, these societies that I, I talk a lot about in the book, places like the Japan Society or the America-Japan Society Network, um, both here and in Japan, growing types of um, uh, student exchanges and individual exchanges. There was a group that still exists. Actually, all these groups still exist, and one called the Japan-America Student Conference. Um, there, there were so many different ways for Japanese and Americans to begin encountering each other, and, and very favorable um, perceptions on the part of both that, again, were shadowed by this geopolitical suspicion and distrust on the part of both governments, uh, and, and also the fact that governments tried to manipulate and control cultural relations for their own purposes, especially the Japanese government tried to do that pre-World War II. Um, the, the war then uh, you know, explodes with such fury. Uh, it's, it's not like you had, for example, in World War II in Europe in the beginning, what they called the phony war, for about eight months or so. It's, it's not like that between Japan and the United States. It is, 
it is vicious and furious and all-encompassing from the beginning, uh, including, you know, just a few months after Pearl Harbor, um, Jimmy Doolittle's raid on Tokyo itself. So, you know, brought the war brought right to the heart of the empire and right to the heart of, of civilian Japan. Uh, the, the fighting between American and Japanese is of the, the utmost brutality. And, you know, it's been well chronicled in, in books and um, uh, media, uh, movies and, and television and the like. Uh, but it, it's just literally unimaginable that the type of, of fighting that that occurred and the brutality of the Japanese army, in particular uh, the Bataan Death March and, and other things, so that these images do grow up in both countries where the Americans see Japan, the Japanese literally as beasts, uh, you know, literally as monkeys and beasts uh, that are subhuman, and the Japanese portray the, the Americans as uh, hideous monsters out to uh, defile Japanese women and, uh, and, and uh, you know, rip apart their land. And, of course, it all culminates in the atomic bombs uh, dropped on civilian centers and, and the, the horrific destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we shouldn't forget Tokyo, which was firebombed in March of 1945 with loss of life greater than uh, Nagasaki. So uh, you, know, you don't have to have an atomic bomb to inflict that type of, of destruction. So given all of that, you would uh, think that cultural exchange between the two countries is dead forever. That, well, why would why could people possibly be interested in each other uh, and each other's cultures after this horrific, you know, four years of war. And the truth is, is that fairly quickly after the surrender and particularly after the occupation uh, is over in 1952, uh, cultural exchange um, blossoms again. The, the, the shoots of, of uh, a new era in cultural exchange push up from the ashes of war. And precisely, I think, uh, because uh well two things precisely in part because of the existence of these old societies that had been going on for 20 or 30 years before the war they're revived and they still have people who are willing to try to commit to um uh, involving uh their countrymen in exchange with the other country so you have a network that you can rely on and then secondly of course Japan is the good piece for us you know the occupation is is a success uh, Japan is pacified. Um, the um, uh, question of uh, war crimes is is you know speedily dealt with, uh, and the emperor is confirmed in his position. Uh, and suddenly we've got new new worries. Uh, just a, a couple years after that, um, uh, China goes communist in 1949 uh, while we're still occupying Japan. 1950, the Korean War, the world looks very different and the Cold War has descended. So Japan suddenly seems to be a, a strong partner. And there's uh, no uh, coincidence that both governments seek to exploit cultural relations and promote cultural relations as a way to maintain a strong political relationship through the alliance. Uh, so you have uh, private entities on the one hand, you have public entities uh, from the state, things like Fulbright uh, or various Japanese groups that promote cultural exchange. Um, but ultimately, you have the power of the market, and that is people accepting this and, and willing to vote with their dollars, so to speak. They are willing to get involved in these activities. Uh, the the uh, growth of Japanese studies uh, in the post-war period is, is phenomenal. I mean, I'm a, I'm a product of it. Um, it. It's not unlike our interest in area studies in China or Europe or, or other areas, but it's uh, 
you know, somewhat striking that this country that we had uh, defeated, uh, you know, and had brutal fighting with and then had occupied now is considered one of our, our closer allies. And, and um, the people accept it. I mean, people in both countries see that there is something to be learned. The Americans, um, you know, get fascinated with, with Zen and get fascinated with the fact that Japan has modernized uh, and rebuilt itself after the war. And the Japanese, of course, look to the United States, um, you know, as the victors in this whole war and, and, the, and the, the country that is the most powerful in the world as a country to emulate. You know, what, what is middle class life there? What should we be striving towards? All of that is something that um, animates the, the next round of cultural exchange between the two countries, which starts uh, in the 1950s. Yeah, I think uh, the, perhaps the popular conception, to the extent people think of uh, the the post-war era and the exchange between the two countries, is um, in, the, in, the, in this period from 1950 to 2000, is uh, U.S. content, Japanese technology. Because I mean, the, the U.S. would come up with the software, but the Japanese were constantly outdoing us in, in kind of making the hardware, the the Sony. You think of the, the Sony products and, uh, and Japanese televisions and video, and video uh, recorders. And so, how, how did that kind of relationship work? America coming up with the, the soft, uh, the, the soft content, and, and Japanese coming up with the hardware work. Well, it, it's partly this um, decision on the part of the Japanese to focus on consumer-oriented export industries as a way to rebuild the economy, not stimulate domestic demand at home, not invest in national defense because uh, they rely on the Americans for that, but to only keep a relatively modest defense force during the 1950s and 60s and, and even into the 70s and beyond. Um, and instead focus on, on things that uh, can be exported. A huge boost for this is actually the Korean War, where Japanese companies get uh, massive orders from American uh, American manufacturers uh, for for parts for different machinery. The army is ordering from Japan. Of course, we're we're stationing most of our troops going to Korea in Japan, and they're rotating in and out of Japan. So it's a huge boon for the economy. And then you have some visionaries. You have visionaries uh, from uh, Honda, visionaries from Toyota, which had started before the war, uh, visionaries like Akio Morita at Sony and and others who are uh, very well educated. They're internationalist in their outlook, and they recognize that this is a niche that Japan can jump on uh, and a way to um, not only rebuild the country but normalize Japan in a, in a way. I mean, you know, goods from Japan initially in the post-war years had been seen as cheap. You know, made in Japan uh, had the connotation that maybe more recently we've had, you know, goods made in China, for example, that they're not of great quality, uh, they're the lower end of the, um, the, the production scale. Uh, and Japan, uh, by the late 50s and 60s, is moving out of that into the transistors, uh, Sony's exports, uh, certainly the cars, which, which I talk a little bit about, and their attempts to break into the American market in the 60s. And look, Japan's also blessed by great timing, uh, just as they are getting, um, for example, in the automobile industry, as David Halberstam talks about in his book, The Reckoning, um, you know, just as they're uh, really developing the export industry, starting to get a toehold in America with these smaller compact cars that went just the opposite from, uh, you know, uh, how American cars were built and, and the size and the like, uh, comes along the the, uh, the oil shock of the early 1970s. So there, there are uh, moments of sheer luck for the Japanese, but also a lot of planning on the part of uh, companies and the part of um, the part of the state. There's less talk about you know the United States, for example, providing the um, the, the soft 
uh, aware of that, uh, you know, if we can call it that, um, providing the knowledge and, and the Japanese taking advantage of it. That really doesn't come until we get significant uh, trade deficits with Japan uh, starting in the 70s and particularly the 1980s. And then people start wondering about uh, the free ride Japan is getting on the military, uh, the fact that uh, it seems to have a lot of trade barriers uh, in uh, its own economy and yet uh, preferential access to the United States, uh, and some arguing precisely that we had, um, you know, provided the the intellectual know-how and the Japanese turned it into um, cash commodities. Yeah, I think um, now um, there's a lot more sympathy for Japan in the U.S., both because of their recent economic woes and also because of the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster. Uh, one other thing you talk about in the book, which I think is really interesting since I know that you and I are both big baseball fans, you talk about Japanese baseball players. You said there have been 40 Japanese players on, on U.S. ball clubs. and. Um, Talk about to what extent they are cultural emissaries. I know you kind of are dubious about that concept, but uh, what, what do you think on that front? I know I read something that said that uh, the Yankees were paying Hideki Matsui about $15 million in the last year of his contract with them, and it, he wasn't worth it in terms of pro project, production during the regular season, although he ended up being the World Series MVP and was great in the series, but he was worth it in terms of jersey sales in Japan made enough money for the Yankees to justify that entire salary. Yeah, I have no doubt. I mean, it's not as much as he was a cultural emissary as he was a, a commodity emissary for, for the Yankees in the way that Fukudome is for the Cubs, Ichiro is for the Mariners, uh, and, and you have a whole score of, of uh, you know, multiple score of Japanese players now. I mean, what's interesting to me, again, as an historian, is that this goes back to the 19th century. The Japanese picked up baseball. Uh, which, as far as we know, uh, and as far as I was able to discover in the book, is their, their sort of first foreign sport. Um, they picked up baseball from uh, some Japanese who had come over to the States in the 1870s and played on company teams. And a lot of folks might not remember that, you know, before you had the, the major leagues and uh, the current professional setup of American baseball, you had companies sponsoring teams and leagues uh, throughout the country and in their regions. And so railroad companies uh, and the like uh, would sponsor what in essence were semi-pro teams. And uh, some Japanese had come over, and there's one I talk about in the book in particular, and, and comes over uh, and brings this sport back. And very quickly, it's adopted both by Japanese companies and by Japanese schools. So today, the biggest sporting event in Japan, uh, even bigger than sumo, is the annual high school basketball tournament. It's called Koshien. It happens every August, and it is phenomenal. The country just stops. Every Japan is made up of uh, 47 prefectures. They're like our states. There is a uh, intra-prefectural competition uh, every year to send one team to represent the prefecture to Koshien, which is a stadium uh, not too far from. Uh, it's in between Osaka and Kobe in the center of the country. So it's a huge national event. It, it's like the Final Four, but to be honest, bigger. Uh, than the final four in the states, uh, so it, it's enormous um, it, uh, high school uh, baseball in, in Japan. Of course, little league too, and you know Japanese were little league world champions a few years ago. Um, companies also in Japan still field semi-pro teams. They have uh, really 
excellent uh, teams and leagues, and those games are televised as well. So baseball has been part of you know, Japan's cultural milieu and cultural landscape now for well over 100 years. Uh, and it was a way in which um, the, the two countries were brought closer together in the 20s and the 30s. And I talk about the barnstorming tours that Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig did in Japan, uh, the way in which the Japanese press just went absolutely crazy over uh, Babe Ruth and, and his all-stars playing and, and basically followed them and their schedules down to the minute. Uh, and it got enormous play in all of the newspapers. Babe Ruth was beloved in Japan. Uh, and I tried to get a picture of him for the book. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to secure rights for it, but a picture of him in Japan. Um, and and that uh, translated ultimately into professional league play in Japan, where you have a, a very expansive professional league uh, system. And, and now Japanese players finally breaking into uh, into the States. So I think for us, Today, number one, we should recognize that really the, the depth of the Japanese uh, love of baseball and the fact, I should mention, that uh, far more Americans have played on Japanese teams than Japanese have played on American teams. Um, there's, uh, uh, for years, there was basically an agreement that you could have two foreign, basically American players uh, playing baseball on a Japanese team. You know, basically one guy uh, in the, uh, the outfield or, or infield and then one pitcher. Uh, that's been broken now. Some teams have more. Uh, but some very well-known uh, players, uh, probably most famous is Cecil Fielder, who went over and played for the Hanshin Tigers uh, in the 90s. Uh, Bobby and, Valentine also. Yeah, and then Bobby Valentine managed in Japan uh, and, and, is, and is loved by the Japanese, managed the, uh, the champions, the, um, uh, the Japan uh, World Series, you know, the Japan Series champions, uh, Warren Cromarty and others, and they're very, very well-known. So I think for us now, we're, we're actually more normalized to the idea of Japanese players. Um, and so to have uh, both pitchers and, and um, great hitters is something that isn't such a, such a shock, but it, it is fairly new. And now you're seeing it with South Korean players and other players, too. So the Japanese really were, were um, uh, you know, trendsetters in that. Well, Misha, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to – we have time for one more question, which is our New Books and Public Policy signature question, which is what would you – what policies would you propose if you were czar for a day to uh, enhance the U.S.-Japanese relationship? Well, it's a good question. It's a great question. I mean, I think to keep with the, you know, the, um, the spirit of what we've been talking about, to talk a little bit about what we should do culturally. I mean, because I think, you know, we have to be realistic that cultural relations don't, um, uh, they will never, obviously they won't prevent war. Uh, in many cases, they won't supplant political relations or economic relations. But for most of us, that's what's really important. I mean, and that's what my book talks about. It's the fact that Americans, for whatever reason, have been fascinated with Japanese culture and they've devoted countless of, of thousands of hours of, of their time and lives to it, and, and vice versa for the Japanese. So it, it is an important part of the bilateral relationship. We may not think about it, you know, it, when we're talking about the president meeting the prime minister, but it's really what most of us care about vis-a-vis -vis the other country. And so I think that one thing that we do need to do, um, and, and within the spirit of cultural exchange, to try and improve uh, understanding between peoples, which is always going to be imperfect, and to try to provide other outlets for connections uh, between Americans and Japanese beyond what the, the state may provide or businesses may provide um, is to recognize this interest and to help 
promote it and, and fund it uh, and give opportunities for Americans to study over in Japan and Japanese to study here to provide uh, venues for exchanges of arts and culture and the like, things that, that we have done that, but that have dropped off uh, somewhat in, in recent years. And I think what we'll find as uh, the hopes for closer relations with China are probably belied uh, by the limitations of what we can do together uh, with between Beijing and Washington. Uh, as India continues to um, be hesitant about the path that it wants to take in the world, uh, and as other countries really um, focus inwardly, um, that our relations with Japan, I think, are going to become more and more uh, important um, in terms of maintaining our position in the Indo-Pacific region. And I think that uh, we should commit not only uh, to um, maintaining uh, tight political and security ties with Japan, but we should also commit to um, maintaining this rather unique uh, cultural relationship uh, that has gone on for uh, over 150 years and which has helped shape both of us into the modern nations that we are. Well, I'm glad you think it's a great question since it is indeed our signature question here on New Books in Public Policy. Misha Oslin, thank you very much for joining us. The book is Pacific Cosmopolitans, a Cultural History of U.S.-Japan Relations. Misha Oslin is a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to an interview on New Books in Public Policy with Misha Oslin, the author of Pacific Cosmopolitans. In the book and in the interview, Dr. Oslin talked about this notion of the enduring cultural exchange between the U.S. and Japan and how important that cultural exchange has been in maintaining relations between the U.S. and Japan even through periods of strife and after periods of war and how important the relationship has been in terms of helping both the U.S. economy U.S. and Japanese culture, and U.S. from a geopolitical perspective. It's been a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you join us next week on New Books in Public Policy. This is Tevi Troy. Thank you for listening.